0: Welcome to episode 269 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Akshat Rathi to talk about his new book, Climate Capitalism. Akshat is a London-based senior reporter for Bloomberg News. He has a PhD in organic chemistry from the University of Oxford and has worked at a number of prestigious publications. I've interviewed him several times over the years and always enjoyed his insights into broad-ranging global energy issues. Climate Capitalism is his first book. It's about, as he writes, how we tackle climate change within the world's dominant economic system and ensure that the wheels of progress don't come to a halt, or worse, go into reverse. So welcome to Energy Talks, Akshay.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, Malcolm.
0: Well, congratulations on your book, man. I mean, I, I've written a thank book. Uh, actually, I've written a couple. And I understand the slog. I mean, it's just a lot of work. And yours is uh, is very well written. And I, I'm going to give you credit and say it's mostly the writer, not the editor. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, it is
1: uh, a hard thing. And I, this is the first one I've done. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the process. Halfway through, I was exhausted and then Uh, The second half, I said, I'm going to lean into joy and 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 write it when I am having fun. And I hope that shows up in the book. Uh, But I feel like it's it's a good opportunity to be able to synthesize what is a complex, ever changing global story into A series of case studies that are making the overall case that actually we are starting to finally, at scale, address the tackling, address the problem of climate change through these solutions around the world. And they are really around the world. It's not anymore a European or a North American story anymore.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons I appreciate having you on the podcast, as I mentioned earlier, is your global perspective. And um, that is, I think, something that's missing from the Canadian debate. I think it's more, I see it more in the Europe, or sorry, the American debate, because the Americans uh, are a geopolitical, they are the big geopolitical power. And so that they see everything through that lens. And I often refer to speeches that um, the Biden administration officials have made, you know, early on in the pandemic where they said, you know, the pandemic woke us up. We didn't realize the extent to which we were vulnerable to Chinese supply chains. And, but now we do know, and we have to do something about it. They see it that way. Whereas in Canada, because we're, you know, one tenth the size and 75, 80% of our trade is North South with the United States. We're very much either plugged into the U S debate uh, or, we're very insular and we're, we're, we're squabbling amongst our, we're, we're like a family of 10 kids in three territories and we squabble amongst ourselves, but we're very provincial that way. We don't have a global perspective, but this is a global process. It's a global issue. It's a global transition. And you can't understand the impact it's going to have on Canada or particularly Alberta, which is you know the oil and gas epicenter of, of Canada. You can't understand that if you don't pay attention to what's going on globally. And yeah. and so maybe just if you could comment from the point of view of your book um, about the global aspect of this.
1: Yes. In a way, energy has become more and more global over the past few decades. I mean, it has always been global in some sense because of oil. But look at gas. Look at even coal. Coal exports and coal trading is at a higher volume than it has ever been before. And of course, now with what's happening with renewables where, okay, it's not really transmission that is happening across borders in most places. Europe, it does happen. Um, It's where do the turbines come from? Where do the panels come from? Where are the electric batteries coming from for electric cars? And so energy is becoming a bigger and bigger global story. And that trend, despite trade wars, despite uh, tariffs is not going to change. Um, because the energy transition itself is only really just getting started. So it is very important as people think about it, this topic, think about this issue, to always recognize that what will happen at the other side of the world can have an impact on how your energy transition story is unfolding.
0: Um the, the, the argument that the energy transition is just getting going, I, I want to push back on that just a little bit. And the reason is because uh, in Canada, we've elevated uh, Professor Vaclav Smiel to the, he's become the patron saint of the oil and gas industry. And part of that is this idea that the energy transition has just started and, and we have decades and decades and decades to go yet. And I push back. I, I argue that, in fact, if you think about tech, uh, this as a technology revolution, all of the key core technologies for clean energy have been on that S-curve for 50 years, 40 years, 30 years. Solar in the 70s, ter- wind turbines in the 80s, EVs, the prototypes in the 90s, the lithium-ion battery in 91, 92, all of those have been around for a long time. What's different now, and where I would agree with you, is that we've all of those technologies are past their inflection point. They're now in the and the hockey stick part of the of the curve. and what we're seeing now that's different since 2020 is rapid growth at the global level. Would you agree?
1: That's right. I think the way to think about this in in the energy transition is just starting is that the opportunity for countries to actually have domestic uh, manufacturing have have domestic competition in the space, is still very much there. It's not written off that China is where all the electric cars are going to come for the energy transition, and that's it. Because today, even with electric cars, you know, selling more than 10 million vehicles last year, the total number of electric vehicles is still 40 million. And that's in a car fleet of 1.2 trillion, uh, 1.2 billion. And so you have this huge, you um, base of illa, of fossil fuel vehicles that need to be replaced. And they will only get replaced uh, if you have enough manufacturing all around the world. So the opportunity set for people to actually embrace the transition, be a part of it, create competitive products is very much there.
0: That's a key point that we keep coming back to over and over again at, Ener- at uh, Energy Media. And that is that this energy transition, like the last one, like the, the last big one 100 years ago, was the triumph of the internal combustion engine and and cheap oil that's essentially set the 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 groundwork for for the american uh dominance of the the of uh, industry global industry after world war ii uh and now we're transitioning from the internal combustion engine and oil and then of course coal uh and gas and we're now we're going into electric technologies and the opportunity to restructure the global economy uh, has, this is very fluid right now. We don't know how it's going to end up, but I remember talking to a colleague of yours, Dr. Uh, Kwesi Momfofo, Mpof- M- I, I always get his name wrong. I, if you see him at the water cooler, apologize for me, okay? But you know who I'm talking about. The head, Bloomberg head of uh, mining and, and metals. I had him on last year and and he said, I, I asked him how long Alberta had to get into the critical minerals game. And he said, I said, maybe it had to be seven years, 10 years, right? Lots of time. He said, no, two to five years. And the reason for that is because just what you said, there are many, many uh, very aggressive, very hungry emerging countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, even Saudi Arabia. Now we see them uh, getting into uh, clean energy manufacturing. They They've been at this for a while. And they understand the opportunity to industrialize, to create jobs for their, to become wealthier and and more middle uh, sort of middle income uh, or better, and they're they're going to drive uh, as hard as they can to benefit from this energy transition. And in a way, they're kind of catching the Europeans and the North Americans napping, aren't they?
1: Yes, the transition is certainly throwing opportunities of all sorts for developing countries. Um, Beyond the countries you named, Thailand is actually the Detroit of Asia. It's been making Japanese cars, uh, internal combustion engine cars for some time now. Uh, But... uh, EV transition is happening in Thailand now. The country has set a goal to manufacture 30% of its uh, fleet uh, by 2030. That's all EVs. And Chinese automakers are coming to Thailand. This is also playing out. I mean, we treat Europe as one block, but it's not. You know, Europe Europe has its different countries with different developing country status. Hungary, for all the things that Viktor Orban and his sort of right-wing views, uh, Hungary is actually pushing forward with the energy transition. It is the place where Um, There will be the most manufacturing of lithium-ion batteries in uh, Europe, where electric car manufacturers are moving to because that's where the batteries are.
0: I I want to get into your chapters uh, fairly shortly, but first of all, I want to set the stage because... uh... You talk about uh, global capitalism, climate capitalism, so we should discuss that a bit. And then your the framework of the book, uh, which I think is important. So let's start with capitalism. This is a quote uh, from one of, uh, might be your introduction. Uh, Reforming capitalism might be the only practical way to get to zero emissions so quickly. This book shows why it's possible to harness the forces of capitalism to tackle the climate problem and how the work has already begun. Why, what What about capitalism needs to be reformed? Well, we should acknowledge
1: that capitalism
0: in its form as it's
1: existed has caused the problem, has exacerbated the problem. And that's because the way we measure economic growth has been uh, in a very narrow way, which is gross domestic product and the gross domestic product does not count for all the impacts that come from the pollution that is created from all that gross domestic product that's been consumed. We have finally woken up to that. And, um, you know, climate change is by Nicholas Stern, uh, an economist called the greatest market failure, because we've ignored those uh, externalities, as they are called. Now that we've understood that, and we are starting to include that, that's where we have to come up with new models in which you can unlock private capital, which is, of course, still driven for a profit motive, but has to be given direction by governments, which areas you can make those profits. So it is not sort of picking which company gets how much profit, which is the sort of socialist way of thinking about the world. It is much more it will still very much capitalism because you can't overthrow capitalism that easily. It'll still be markets, it'll still be competition, but there will be more direction given by governments, which places you, you know, which areas those markets need to be created and what are the rules in which they will operate.
0: Well, let's talk about the framework uh, because I think this is interesting. Uh, And Again, I'll quote from your book, the framework relies on three major actors, technology, policy, and people. That are continually shaped by money power and politics what led you to use that framework
1: well so the book is essentially trying to look at case studies of success in and around the world of scaling these different technologies but also scaling the systemic solutions that are needed for unlocking these technologies so of course wind solar batteries electric cars but also finance laws uh, activism, shareholder activism, which are all pieces that need to fall in place for us to be able to unlock. That's why the people policy technology is sort of like a, a 3 fur that needs to come together. Uh, but they will be different in different economic context or different political context. Hence, they will be shaped by money, power, and politics wherever in the world they are. And so it's an interesting dynamic situation, but if you take these three um, factors, the three variables um, in a particular economic setting, you can find a way to make it work to reshape capitalism in that specific area to try and solve this problem. And of course, we should also recognize there isn't one form of capitalism. What happens in the U.S. is very different from what happens in Europe and in China. China, too, is very
2: capitalist.
0: Well, let's talk about China, because that's the subject of chapters two and three. And I have to say, personally, 2023 was the the year that I woke up to the importance of China to the energy transition. Um, I'd always known, you know, you can't be an energy journalist and not understand that China is a, is a big player uh, in the global energy system. But I didn't realize the extent to which it dominated the clean energy industry and that's the that's become a key part it's not just adopting wind and solar it's who makes the who makes the sun, the solar panels who makes the wind turbines who controls those supply chains the critical minerals who, who controls the the smelting and the refining of those uh, minerals into into battery metals and then assembles them into into battery packs all of those uh, questions i think i understand I, this past year I, I began to realize how much china uh, how influential China is. How much and how much of it was a deliberate policy of the Chinese. You know, twenty, twenty-five years ago, they said, "Okay, look, we're not going to catch the U.S. on things like automobiles. Uh, so let's jump ahead to the next generation of technology." They they not only uh, adopted it, but then they innovated in it. They became great innovators. They're no longer just passive recipients of of Western technology, and they learned how to scale and how to drive down costs. And when we say that you know China controls 80% of the solar panel manufacturing and 70 or 80 percent of battery manuf, I mean, these are this is the heartbeat of the energy transition, and it all runs through China.
1: It does. And the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, if you look at 2023, there's this big figure, which is we spent 1.8 trillion dollars as the world on the energy transition. Well, how much of that came from China? More than a third um and how much of what china is in is deploying in all renewables in solar and wind is together more than the rest of the world combined and so the numbers in china everything in china has been big and has been big for quite some time but that's true of the energy transition too but there's also talking about technology as you brought up you know yes it is not a lie that in the past the chinese or developing countries in general took technologies and then developed them. But it has always been only one truth. In those regions that come from India, there's always been indigenous, there's always been local technology development that has taken technologies from the West and then developed it for their own markets because there are different needs in those places. So technology innovation has always been a part of these places. It's just that they've now been able to unlock it at scales that are now rivaling uh, Western technology innovation, um, and so you know that may have been an oversight in in sort of our narrative that you know China just copies. Uh, well, it did copy, but it also always innovated. Now it also innovates at
2: scale.
0: In uh, chapter two, you tell the story, and I'm going to get his name wrong, so you I'll rely upon you to pronounce it correctly. One gang. One gang. Thank you very much. Can you tell us the story?
1: It's such a lovely and fascinating story, right? So he's born during this very violent period in China where it's uh, it's called, you know, that is sort of the cultural revolution where, um, you know, people are banished from cities into uh, villages to go and learn the ways of the farmer rather than live in these urban societies and sort of like, sort of a backwards turn in in Chinese society. He's born in that period. Uh, But then, you know, that period is, over and he gets to study in china and becomes an auto engineer and of course at that time the place he wanted to be and where technology innovation was happening was in europe and america so he goes to germany does a phd gets a prestigious job at audi rises up the ranks as you know as as a good immigrant would do coming from from those places but then recognizes looking back at china that look if people my people were to live the kind of lifestyle that germany uh, germans live they're gonna have to burn 16 times more oil per person. And there's just not enough oil in the world for that to happen. And so what do we need to be able to enable that kind of lifestyle? And so he goes and talks to the Chinese leadership uh, at at the time and convinces them that taking this perspective, this long-term perspective and creating an entirely new industry is in your interest. And it will take time but if you give me the support, I can make it happen. That started in 2000, right? That is when he uh, was put on a secretive program to look at alternative ways in which, um, alternative fuels that could power automobiles. He wasn't sold on batteries or on hydrogen, but eventually came to the battery solution by around 2008-9 when the Chinese hosted the Olympic games and showcased what they can do with electric cars in a very small way. Uh, and then policy support got them where it is.
0: Yeah, in uh, in North America we tend to idolize uh, businessmen. You know the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates, uh, those kind of people. Uh, more the Americans, I think, than the the Canadians. Though we we do have a a few of our own. And but we when we think of China, we think of it as a monolith. You know, we think of it as the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's. Uh, I was particularly interested in hearing an individual story and the role that he played in in this process. And it wasn't just the faceless state uh, undertaking, you know, the, to to make the transition, the decision to become a clean energy adopter, and more importantly, I think, uh, a manufacturer. Um, let's go on to the next chapter, which is India. And India is a fascinating place, and in Canada we have many, many uh, 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 Indian immigrants over the over the over decades. They play a, a very large role in provinces like uh, like British Columbia, where I live, and and so we have more. I think we have a lot. We have many connections to to India through those through those folks, and I'm curious how India has changed in the last decade or two, as it as an active player in the energy transition.
1: So India has nowhere the capability, capacity, economic heft of China. Um, it is still a smaller economy. It is still further down the development pipeline. And, um, you know, it was also a thriving democracy, and you do get changes in government um And you do then get changes in in the policy directions uh, those governments go in. So it's not quite as state directed as China can be uh, with a single party ruling um, the the government. So so India has its own challenges which are very different from China. Um, But what India does have is its ability to then take a solution that is economically in its benefit and run with it, and that's what it did with solar, which is the story I, I tell in, in the book, um, where India recognized that it's going to need more power, period. And yes, it's going to burn more coal because that's something that it has its uh, on its own shores. But that's nowhere going to be enough with its mining capacity, uh, with the amount of coal it has in the ground. It requires other forms of energy production, and of course, it bakes in sun. You know, we come from a hot country, and so why not tap into solar? And so India started that journey and in its own way found policy and policy mechanisms that are very tuned to what developing countries need, uh, made a number of innovations that are now being used by other developing countries around the world. Um, And the the Indian um, solar story has been a massive success, but it also could not have happened just through governments because you know, the way governments work, they're not as efficient. There are broken pieces, there are broken markets. And so entrepreneurs play a big role. And I feature uh, Suman Sinha, who's the CEO of Renew, which is one of the largest renewable energy companies in India, and what he had to do to be able to unlock that potential. Uh, and some of that came from his experience as a Wall Street financier and going to places like Canada. The Canadian Pension Fund was one of the uh, big uh, investors in renew and bringing in foreign capital to actually enable the transition. So it requires, as we talked about, people, policy and technology all to come together, but in that economic context to make it work.
0: Akshat, where is India going over the next 10 to 20 years? My my impression is, and, and certainly the the arguments of the uh, the status quo defenders, they point to India Mining, uh, mining more coals, consuming more coal, building more coal plants, but at the same time they're building out enormous amounts of of uh, renewable energy. So where 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 do you see India in the next ten or twenty years?
1: Yeah, I think we should just recognize sort of the status quo is going to be one that we will keep coming back to. You know, this transition is not going to be a nice smooth curve. It's going to be a bit messy. Two steps forward, one step back. You know, things around the world will happen. The Ukraine war was not something you could have predicted. Uh, It caused all kinds of energy crisis. So from an Indian perspective, the past decade has been one that now that we can look back on, we can say, India had built too much coal in the past decade. It thought it had a ton more energy consumption coming that did not uh, quite appear. And so coal power plants had gone out of fashion and solar was starting to take off. And so that gave it even more reason for coal to not be there. Post-pandemic, growth has picked up again, and electricity consumption is back up on the rise. Now, will it be as strong and as persistently strong for the next decade? Not clear, but the Indian government doesn't want to also be in a place where it has blackouts and it runs out of access to energy. So it is planning to increase coal mining. It is planning to build more coal power plants. But at the same time, it has set very clear goals to try and build renewables. So 500 gigawatts of clean energy capacity. Most of it is going to be solar, and that also is a 2030 goal. So you're going to see both tracks being chased. And in India, it's one of those things where you set a goal very ambitiously. You don't quite hit it, but you get very close to it. And that's going to happen both on renewables and on coal. Um, and so it is. It is just a Story that we have to recognize from developing country perspectives, which is they will always put priority on economic growth first and climate change next, because that is their right.
0: Akshat, uh, earlier today, uh, I did an interview with uh, Gerhard uh, Schleg, uh, who is the chief technology officer for Hitachi. We we're talking about p- renewables and, and power grids. And his argument is that uh, we have the technology, we have both the generation technology in terms of wind and solar, we have the power electronics and other technologies that are required by the grid to integrate those. We, we know uh, what's required in terms of policy and regulations so that we can trade electricity and do other things. All of that is good. Uh, we, it's, it's the really the politics uh, around this that become a, a quite a limiting factor as to how fast you can go. And so given the rate at which China and to lesser extent India are adopting renewables, how are their grids keeping up? Are they able to do the reengineering that's required to adopt renewables at this scale?
1: Um, yes, I mean, China for sure, given state grid, which is one of the biggest uh, actually employers period, it is as big as the employer of like Indian railways, which is, you know, 10 million people. Um, and so, it, like, there is in China, the grids have been developing as quickly as they are uh, deploying renewable energy. Uh, same case with India. India has been the the challenges haven't been around technology they've been more around actually building stuff making sure you know in China you can go and build whatever you want in India it's still a problem you have people and landowners that you have to uh, politically navigate around and so permitting can be uh, an issue just as there is permitting issues in Europe and and in America so technology per se hasn't been a challenge now neither India nor China have quite reached the renewable Penetration that you see on some of the European grids, when sometimes the entire grid can run on wind, and sometimes, uh, you know, wind is contributing over a month, 70% of the uh, uh, generation and, uh, 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 that's consumed. India hasn't reached that level, or neither has China, and so we haven't quite seen that strain. What when it happens when there is high con- high contribution of renewables. But that time is coming, and maybe not the next decade, but definitely over the next twenty years, and so they will be playing catch up on on grids for sure.
0: Well, let's th- go on and talk about uh, chapters uh, chapter five, uh, the fixer, the International Energy Agency, and uh, I because of the role that the IEA is playing, and, and against its will, I'm I'm sure, uh, in the Canadian uh, conversation where, uh, this the Proponents of the status quo are using it as a punching bag. And as someone who spends a lot of time reading IEA reports, I mean, the the amount of analysis that comes out of Paris from their offices is staggering. You know, someone like me, I have a hard time keeping up, and and I'm sure I don't, actually. Um, But the quality of their work is first rate, as far as I can tell, uh, without, you know, knowing... Any, anything about their data and so on. But I would I would say that it's first rate. And I think the in of the three scenarios in the IEA World Energy Outlook 2023, uh, the steps status quo is not on. We're, we're way beyond the status quo already. Net zero uh, scenario is possible but unlikely. i you know that's gonna be a stretch, possible but unlikely. But the announced policy scenario, the middle scenario. Is very likely. I think that's I. My personal feeling is that's about where we're we're headed, and for Canada as the world's fourth largest uh, oil uh, producer, that's bad news. You know, unless something is done, because in the APS scenario, oil demand falls off quite precipitously after twenty thirty. So that's kind of my take on the IEA. I think it's I think it's a first-rate organization and the Canadian Energy Regulator does too, uh, as I found out in an interview. So tell us about your take on the IEA.
1: Well, must acknowledge that it is the 50th anniversary year of the IEA. It was created in 1974 in a response to the oil crisis that was brought on by OPEC and it was created as oil consumers coming together because all the oil suppliers had come together in a cartel. So it was a cartel against a cartel fight to make sure that oil supply and oil markets are running more more securely. Energy security was its first mandate. Under that mandate, it had to find, ensure oil supplies were there, but also to reduce energy. Energy efficiency has always been its mandate. Now, the IEA over the decades has changed especially over the past decade. And that's the decade I feature in the book. Under Fatih Birol, who joined as the um, executive director, the leader of the IEA in 2014, the IEA has become much more not just ensuring energy security for fossil fuels, but also for clean energy. And Um, you know, for all the detractors of the IEA, which are many, and, you know, OPEC is not uh, a fan of the IEA from the very beginning of this conversation. um, IEA's numbers are now embedded in all kinds of government regulations and decisions across the world. They are embedded in all kinds of investor decisions around the world. And the reason they are is because they come And they do analysis that is considered um, backed by facts and backed by very deep analysis where they send these analysis for peer review with the entire energy community. So it's not just IEA taking a stance and running with it. It actually gets checked by uh, a huge number of academics, industrialists um, that ensure that what IEA is saying is not outrageous, that it is something practical, feasible. Uh, And that's why uh, those numbers are used so widely. The director told me in in an interview that the IEA's ability to do all this relies completely on the numbers. The numbers are its backbone. And so, you know, people will always take a stance one way or another, and if, that stance doesn't agree with what the IEA is saying, then of course the IEA is wrong. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the big decision makers who have to look at big analysis um, do not use the IEA anymore. If anything, they're using the IEA even more.
0: I have to say that uh, as a journalist, I'm not an economist, I'm not a modeler, uh, but I read a lot of these reports. So I, I Bloomberg NEA, next to the IEA Bloomberg is my second uh, favorite source of information. I find Colin McCarriker, who heads up your transportation division, in particular, good Canadian boy, I might add, uh, is, you know, that their work is top notch, in my opinion. But I also look at Oxford Institute for Energy Studies and Rystad and BP and, and other sources. And as a journalist, one of the advantages I have is I can, because I, I, I deal, you know, I do interviews with experts all over the world and spend a lot of time on Canadian issues. My question always is, does that modeling line up with the evidence that I'm seeing over time and uh, on oil demand or technology adoption or whatever it is? And I would have to say that the IEA modeling lines up very well with what I see. And, and I could be wrong. Maybe I'm biased, you know, ba- based on the sources I'm interviewing and so on. But I, I would have to say that uh, they give those uh, that modeling. Uh, I have a fair, a high degree of confidence, as the scientists say, high degree yeah. of confidence.
1: And if if that num- those numbers weren't providing value, there are, as you say, other numbers that market participants, that even government regulators could be using. Uh, It's not sort of like the IEA has a monopoly on energy projections or on on technology trends, Uh, but clearly it is delivering for these participants and has done for many years. That's why they use those numbers so widely.
0: Well, let's uh, go on now to chapter six and seven in in the USA. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in the interview that the Americans kind of woke up at the beginning of the pandemic, realized they were vulnerable. They were dependent on China, too dependent for their taste. And so they poured an enormous amount of capital and a lot of policy into the energy transition in the last three, four years. And what's your take on... Whether or not the Americans can at least—I don't know if they're going to catch up to China, not in my lifetime—but even—but but maintain, be a player, a major player in the energy transition.
1: Well, we're talking in twenty twenty four when a lot of it could be decided based on which uh, way the election goes. Um, certainly, the Inflation Reduction Act has changed the conversation, has given a big boost to the energy transition, and. Even to the extent where other countries and other regions like Europe, uh, you know, big allies of uh, America, um, are questioning whether the direction they are taking on the energy transition needs to be accelerated to be able to keep up with the uh, uh, tax credits that are going to come through in the Inflation Reduction Act. Now. Some of what the Inflation Reduction Act has created is going to persist no matter the change in politics. But what is true is if you get another democratic term, you're going to see an even faster transition. Now, you know, I'm not in the business of making predictions, but, you know, looking at history, I wouldn't write off America for anything. It has the ability as the world's largest economy with uh, such a huge amount of talent and innovation uh, that, if it really wants to catch up on something, it can. Um, will the politics allow it to? Is the question. Um, you know, the case studies I have in the book are tied to a specific technology, which is um, carbon capture, um, around either removing emissions from industrial sources or power plants, or actually removing it from the air. Two different uh, ways in which you can use. The same technology, one cheaper than the other. Removing it from the air is a much more expensive technology, and the US is the place is the leader in deploying that technology. But it is those are the only two chapters where it is a warning that if you don't back something properly, if you don't have the right actors, and if the actors are not interested in that technology, you're not going to scale it up. So we haven't seen a scale up of um, carbon capture globally. Um, and it continues to be way, way behind what are needed for net zero targets, or even you know the APS the announced policy scenario. And so, you can learn from what America got wrong in a way.
0: Yeah, the uh, this may uh, come as a surprise to you, but can't, uh, Alberta is actually a global leader in in carbon capture and storage. It's been uh, it's had a number of projects um, over the years. The Quest refinery. There's already a carbon uh, a CO2 pipeline. Uh, the oil sands producers have announced a major uh, carbon capture and storage initiative. Uh, uh, I think they're going to bury 22 megatons of CO2 emissions per year here shortly. So we've been watching this with some interest because the fossil fuel interest, the oil and gas interests in particular in Canada, are adopting carbon capture and storage as a means of extending their their competitiveness and and because they're highly uh, they're very high emissions intensity uh, emissions intensity is becoming a competitive issue and will be uh, more in the future so i i wonder what your take is on on that Uh, the emissions intensity of products and supply chains and the role that that might play, and maybe that is one of the ways that uh, North America can compete with other jurisdictions like China perhaps
1: um because the emissions intensity of oil is uh, you know mostly differentiated based on the type of product. So the production of oil, especially tar sands, is just Energy intensive, and that energy tends to come from fossil fuels. That's why it's emissions intensive. But most of the emissions that are produced from fossil fuels are produced because of, um, sorry, I'm going to. Yeah. Most of the energy emissions that are produced from oil are produced from burning of the oil. So I haven't seen yet uh, that people at the pump are buying greener oil, uh, less emissions intensive oil, and so. I'm not sure that competitive edge from being able to do it is happening. I think what you're seeing in Alberta is a push uh, from what government regulations are doing. The Canadian government is saying the oil and gas emissions uh, need to come down because they are the largest emissions for our economy and we have a net zero target and you are operating on Canadian uh, uh, soil. So you must agree with those regulations. That's why the carbon capture push is happening, which is fine. You know, that's what governments are for. They set targets that are good for society, and then corporations have to operate within those defined
0: rules. Well, Akshat, in uh, chapters uh, eight and nine, you talk about oil and gas companies, and uh, I was recently reading a column by uh, a Bloomberg opinion writer, uh, Javier, Javier Blaze, and he argued that don't look to the oil and gas companies to innovate in the energy transition. Their, their self-interest is in perpetuating the extraction and sale of oil and gas, not switching over to clean energy, to wind and solar and electricity. And um, What do you make of that argument?
1: Yes, it's, a, it's an interesting argument. And I think based on what you're looking at uh, with oil and gas companies taking a step back uh, on clean energy happening in Europe and uh, in America... It is definitely one that you could argue is is happening. But then you look at history, there have been oil and gas companies that have transitioned. Um, I feature Orsted uh, in the book. Of course, today we think of it as a uh, offshore wind giant, but it used to be called Danish Oil and Natural Gas. It went from being an oil and gas company to being a clean energy company, and that transition happened over the past 20 years. So I wouldn't... Uh, I'm not in the business making predictions. I wouldn't write off that an oil company cannot make this transition. But yes, it's clear that their business model, their shareholders aren't setting them up for uh, a clean energy transition. They want their returns. They want uh, their um, uh, investments producing healthy returns, which is what oil and gas companies have been doing uh, in recent years. And they're very happy with it. And so they are much more, looking at a harvesting model, which is let's run this to the ground, let them use their own gas assets in the most efficient way, produce cash for us. And we, the investors will then invest in clean energy because that's where the the future of the energy industry lies.
0: Well, Lakshad, this has been a fascinating conversation. And I guess to wrap it up before we get to the question and answer section of our portion of the, uh, of this uh, podcast, uh, maybe I'll leave the last word with you and uh, Looking ahead, what are the, the top two or three trends that you're watching heading up You know, between now and 2030 or now and 2040?
1: One of the things that I'm looking at is whether hydrogen becomes any real. You know, there's a lot of hype around uh, hydrogen. There's a bunch of tax credits being given uh, in the U.S., but also in Europe, um, and so there's clearly a push for supply. But neither large projects are being built, nor uh, demand is being seen. So how does that change the game? Because hydrogen is an interesting fuel, it burns cleanly, if produced cleanly, um, and has applications that could actually make a difference, but we are not seeing enough of a move. Um, the other place I'm looking at is... Uh, do we get an even faster EV transition? We are seeing sort of a slowdown in the growth of EVs. They're still growing uh, rapidly, just that they're growing a little bit slowly compared to last year. Um, And nobody has quite confirmed that that's going to be the long-term trend, that we're going to be in a slower growth phase, or that we'll see a rise. And I'm keen on looking at what automakers come up with solutions for this challenge. Do they go into affordable EVs? Do governments step in and create better charging infrastructure? Um, That, I think, for North America and Europe is an interesting story to follow. But then the same EV story is playing very differently in developing countries, where two-wheelers are taking off, where battery swapping is taking off, um, where buses and fleets of taxis, EV taxis are taking off. And so you're getting a very different kind of transition happening in developing countries. So to me, EVs are always a fascinating story.
0: Well, Akshay, thank you very much for this. This has been a great interview. And I'm really, uh, really appreciate you coming on to talk about your book, Climate Capitalism. Uh, Where can uh, uh, listeners who are interested, where can they buy the book?
1: So the book will be out in Canada 12th of March and it'll be available wherever you buy your books, uh, you know, in in airports if you fly in bookstores or on Amazon uh, or any of your local bookstores. So uh, the publisher is actually Greystone Books, which is a Canadian publisher. And so hopefully um, you find the book interesting and I'd be keen to hear from you if you do read it, what you
0: thought about it. Well, I have read most of it, and I do find it interesting. And I, I, very good work, and, and kudos to you, congratulations on this achievement. Now, I, we've got an audience today. This will be the first time that uh, we've uh, Energy Talks has done this, where we're going to open up the, the mics to uh, allow the, some of audience members to ask questions of Akshat. So, uh, folks, if you could click on reactions, if you have a question, click on the raise hand, and then I'll get to you. And if you could uh, keep your questions uh, relatively uh, short Uh, in deference to the fact that it's probably where Akshat is in London, probably about six or seven in the evening. We want to let him get to his supper. So uh, Jennifer, Jeremy, uh, I'm going to call on you. And I've unmuted your mic. Jennifer, if you can ask your question, please.
3: Uh, Thank you, Markham, and nice to meet you, Akshat. Uh, Thank you so much for the work you're doing. I'm excited to read your book and uh, took a lot in today. So I unfortunately don't have specific questions, but I do have um, a general question for you. So uh, my lens, just to give you a little bit of insight as to where I'm coming from. So I worked in the oil and gas industry for 22 years, geophysicist, so I was on the development side for 10 straight years and then got a glimpse into the liability space. Um, and then that sort of propelled my second half of my career. Um, so my my question is around um, resource limits to what we're um, seeing. Like I heard you talk about the um, Red Sea and you know what's happening there right now, the conflicts that we didn't anticipate that have now made things worse in those spaces and COVID for that matter. Um, but like, I'll give you a specific example. Um, I was speaking with a friend recently who's at one of the major um, mid, midstream companies and um, they were saying that they're seeing what used to be a 3% failure rate on a pipeline seg- or a pipe segment uh, joint um, to a 30%. Yeah, so, and that is because the the availability of pipe is limited. So there's reused pipe happening. Um, so when I look at that, um, you know, as somebody who's very aware of liability and the issues that would come with that, even if you're successful at getting that pipe in the ground, what it might mean in terms of, um, impact. So my, you know, first of all, supply chain, secondly, concerns about environmental hazards and like my lens as, as Markham is quite familiar is I, I look at the energy transition as, um, a systematic transition and the, um, The concern I have is that we're only looking at it as if it's emissions and um, that we need to actually clean up and restore our habitats at the same time. So to me, the biggest untapped opportunity I see is in the cleanup of oil and gas sites. There's a in Alberta alone, there's a two hundred and sixty billion dollar economy in weight. So I guess I just look at the your my and my concern. So why I'm in this space now is that we cannot do everything that we need to do the way, you know, because of these limits. For example, oil and gas is taking resources away from renewables. So, Mike, that's my concern, my lens, and I'm just curious. I'll, I'll stop there and just—I know that was a—you yeah. know—I'm well, hoping. What, of- what's the,
1: what's the question?
3: Uh, well, really, what do you, what do you see in terms of? Lens? Are are you seeing? Um, you know, you talked about, for example, the EV trend being uh, slower, like yeah. still growing. Is that a supply chain constraint? You know, I'm right, just wondering. Right, if there's right. other. Other reasons that might be impacting the, yeah. the the predictions, the outcomes we're expecting. Thanks. Yeah.
1: Um, so you you're right. I mean, fossil fuels are limited. Metals are limited, uh, and the energy transition is going to need a ton of metals. Now, what we do know is we do have the capacity to be able to extract the metals that we need. Um, you know. That is not going to be a problem. We'll see prices go up and then uh, because the prices go up, supply catches up. Uh, but you're right that we've made mistakes in the past where we have not treated the materials that we have drawn uh, well enough that we could actually be recycling and recycling properly, not in uh, pipes that are poor quality and then lead to liability issues. Uh, and that requires a level of thinking that we haven't done in the past. I think one good example where this thinking is being done properly is europe europe doesn't have the energy transition metals it is clearly uh, pushing for the for uh, evs uh, in that space and uh, wants to make sure there's complete political backing but because it doesn't have the metals it has created a really robust framework around having to recycle the batteries that come into its supply chain and we will start to see recycled batteries come into electric cars soon so that's one place where i think uh, resource constraint could be managed. And that's that's something a lot more countries will have to do.
0: Akshat, I, I wanna ask you about the concept of circul- a circular economy. So basically this idea that whatever we take out, we we use, we recycle, and then we use a, use again and with the minimum amount of pollution and, and waste. And uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, the idea of the circular economy was kind of, it was a, a marginal idea as far as I can see. But now I'm seeing, you know, governments talk about it, major corporations are talking about it. Is that one of the ways that we can minimize the the concerns that, that Jenny raised and yes. by taking that approach? Certainly, but I think it is still talk, not action.
1: Uh, you know, there's more more and more talk about circular economy, but few places where you can see it. I mean, plastics are a very good example. You know, we think we can recycle plastics we have all those symbols that tell us they can and yes of course we can recycle plastics but how much plastic is actually recycled it's a tiny fraction less than 5% of plastic in most countries and so uh there is talk but not action i think batteries are a place where given the value of those metals uh the recycling is just an economic in it e- e- makes an economic case for it and of course it makes an energy security case for it material security case for it that's where we might see you know higher levels of circularity come through, and there will never be 100% circularity. You will always be losing things as you recycle them, but you can get to pretty high levels of circularity, especially with backing metals.
0: Roy, um, Roy uh, you've got your hand up, uh, you your hand so, up. Uh, so ask Akshat a question. Please. Ask Akshat a question.
2: Please. Okay, uh, great presentation by the way. This kind of goes along with the last question and with Jennifer's uh, talk about you know, the liabilities with these oil companies. I'm working with a, a group called Sue Big Oil. It's uh, it's a long shot trying to do a class action lawsuit, but we think it'll work. But, um, you know, part of it as working through this thing, I'm seeing that, you know, your your comments about capitalism, um, and it looks to me like, you know, these capitalism system here in Canada and the U.S. and most of the world did not take climate damage, both, climate change and the ongoing pollution and cleanup costs into account as a cost, you know, so, so why not, you know, where were the auditors, where were the, the accounting uh, people who, I mean, I look at these liabilities and they're huge and, and uh, the shareholders have been getting dividends and dividends and dividends on profits that are false really. If you look at, many businesses is this just a failure of governance yeah. um uh, is it is it our government that's saying you know we need to watch these accountants and then yeah. oil companies and hold them to account like where where where's the problem here where did it originate? it's a
1: it's a good question i it's you know it's a good question i you know right. um, i'm hearing myself yeah, if you mute yourself right you yep.
0: i just right. muted his, his, uh yeah. microphone go ahead Asa. so
1: yeah it's a good question you know, it really depends from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, um, and I'm not so familiar with the with the liability clauses uh, in specific jurisdictions. One place that I have looked at, and and that's sort of a, a case study in how uh, government regulation gone wrong can be a big problem, is around um, use wells in gas wells in America. So gas wells specifically. Uh, there was a big company that went around buying up these uh, depleted gas wells uh, from oil and gas companies, and oil and gas companies were very happy to give them up because the regulations were there. Once an oil and gas company has extracted the gas, it is their liability to close it off forever. But that is an expensive um, undertaking, and what this company did was it uh, went around buying these old gas wells and just told the regulator, actually, That company couldn't draw more gas, but we think we can draw more gas, so we are just gonna keep using it. And they never actually extracted gas from it, they just kept the well as it is, leaking all that methane slowly. because it did not want to pay for the liability and the liability was taken off the oil and gas companies. So the regulations were there, but they were being abused because the regulator wasn't seeing that these companies are committing a fraud. Now that fraud has been called out, the regulators are looking into it and investigating how to fix it. But you're right, like this is a governance failure. And, you know, governs almost always regulators have to catch up with what the industry is doing if it is not doing it right.
0: I'd like to address this because I, I actually explained this for Alberta in uh, part two of our unethical oil investigative series. So, back in the 30s, we'll go back in the, into the 20s when Alberta began to develop oil and gas, the uh, remediation, reclamation uh, was not considered a major priority. The major priority was expansion of the industry, attraction of capital, creation of job, jobs, and creation of of revenue for the government. Those were the four top priorities. And so what the regulator in Alberta decided to do, and and this is actually true in the U.S. as well, is they said, we're not going to take security at the beginning of the well's life. We're going to take it at some other point. And as soon as you decide that you're not going to take it at the beginning, then where do you take it? And, And this is an issue that regulators across North America have struggled with, and all of them, all of them have failed. And they because then you wind up. Do you take it at the end of the life when? But then most many oil companies are bankrupt, and then they can't afford to do it. And no. and so the the this is again an illustration uh, of the failure of governance because the jurisdiction had priorities other than the environment. Correct.
1: Akshat,
0: um, do I you want to just jump yeah, in? Yeah, Sheila.
1: Yeah, Sheila had a question. I need to go in five minutes. So um, if if Sheila has a question, I'm happy to take that.
0: Okay, Sheila, if you could unmute your phone and ask your question quickly. I'll
2: be be very quick and I'll I'll just go one little aspect of it, which is I keep reading in the paper, oil companies are washed with billions of dollars that they're handing on to investors. So is there no way to harness any of that? I mean, because otherwise, I don't know where we're going to get the capital to do this
1: because I don't see it flooding in. So that is a very good question, and it is one that is the company's decision, right? And the company's decision is, in a way, decided by the shareholders of the company. And if the shareholders are asking for those billions as returns, rather than letting the oil company invest it in clean energy, then they are treating those oil and gas companies as harvesting companies where they just harvest the assets down to zero, take the profits. And they think the investors or the shareholders clearly are thinking, we can do better things with this money. We think we can put it in better companies that will drive the energy transition and that oil and gas companies are unlikely to be the companies that will be driving this transition. So you can interpret that bet that way. Of course, it's not one way. The shareholders are many and they have different thesis on what they want, but the outcome tells you that they are currently not interested in having oil and gas companies uh, invest those billions in clean energy.
0: Just a a quick note, in Canada, in Alberta, all of the big companies are promising investors 75% at a minimum uh, return of their free cash flow. So that tells you, as, as economist Phil Verleger told me in a in a previous interview, he said that that's the one of the signs of the sunset industry is when the investors start taking their capital up. That's the way they see it. So. Akshat, thank you very much. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate that you put in as much time as you did. Good luck with your book sales. Sorry about the
1: technical problems. Yes. Uh, And yeah, please, uh, thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for all the questions and and for engaging. Um, I hope you read the book. And and please do get in touch when you do read it and tell me what you think. Whether you violently disagree with something or violently agree with something. I would love to hear both.
0: I suspect you're going to see more violently agrees. Thank you very much, Akshat. Bye. (音楽) We'll be right back. back.